For the last two weeks, we have been out of the Gospel of Mark. Two weeks ago, we went through our vision for this fall ministry. And so if you're still confused a bit about the course of your life, I would encourage you to go online and you can find that message online and give it a listen. And so for two weeks, we've been out of Mark, but we are working through a consecutive series on the Gospel of Mark. And so this morning, would you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8? And our text will be verses 22 through verse 33. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab one from one in front of you. And you can find Mark chapter 8 on page 844. So as a people needy for God's word, let's give a listen. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came, Jesus and his disciples, to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, "Do Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we confess we are a needy people. As we look into this text, we see our own lives illustrated in the disciples. We're often a confused people, a hard-hearted people, a people of misunderstanding. And so, Father, we pray this morning that by your grace and by your word and the work of the Spirit that you would overcome the remaining blindness in our hearts. We ask that you would give us clarity as we look into your word that we might know what this kingdom of God is all about. That we might know plainly who your son is and what his mission is and what 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 his mission as a Christ is all about. Father, we stand in need. We need you to work in our hearts. We need your grace. So, Father, we pray, would you, would you meet our needs once again this Lord's Day? Would you administer your word to us with power? 
Would you shake the idols in our hearts? Would you free us from the many loves of comfort, of self, of pride? And would you give us Christ Jesus in the gospel, we pray. Amen. So we've been studying Mark's gospel for the, the past months. And Mark's gospel announces tremendous news to us. This book is about certain news, and we find this certain news on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus begins his ministry announcing, preaching a message, and he says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus reveals in his preaching, in these, these short words, that the time of waiting, that the time of hope and expectation is over, and the time of realization and arrival and accomplishment has come. What the scriptures wrote of in hope, what Isaiah and Malachi and the rest of the prophets saw from afar and at a distance has now drawn near. But as we see in Mark's gospel, this glorious announcement of good news that the time is fulfilled, that God has drawn near, demands a response. While this news, this good news is cosmic in scope, while it is news that ought to make the kings and the, the rulers of this world tremble, while it is news that shakes the very foundations of the kingdom of darkness, it is news that personally involves everyone who comes into contact with it. This news is to be met with a certain kind of behavior, with a certain kind of response and attitude. Jesus calls to us in the preaching of the gospel. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. The Lord Jesus calls us to fidelity. He calls for our, our loyalty in his preaching. He calls for us to, to bank our lives upon this message that he preaches about the kingdom and the activity of God in this world. He calls us to realign our priorities, the way we think, the way we love, the way we feel, to his preaching. But it's here with Jesus' preaching in our ears, this good news, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here with Jesus' demands, their heavy demands, their weighty demands, repent and believe in the gospel, that we enter into the central struggle of discipleship. And Jesus' preaching this morning should leave us with a bunch of, of questions. And we can ask Jesus this morning, well, what is this kingdom that you preach of? What does this kingdom look like? How can I recognize it? How can I know that it has actually come and active in this world? Even more, we can ask, well, why would I want to live a life of loyalty to this kingdom? Why would I want to realign the priorities of my heart and, and loves and feelings according to this kingdom and the word that you preach? So those are important questions. And Mark doesn't leave us to our own resources as we consider these questions, but he gives us answers as we work through the many stories that he has carefully compiled for us. Mark charts a sure and steady course for us. The kingdom is near. The time is fulfilled. God is active in this world. Why? Because Jesus has come. And from the very outset, Mark has taught us this about Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And what Mark is saying is that whatever we are to make of this kingdom, its character, its content, its shape, its aims, its claims, must all be based upon who this Jesus is. To understand the kingdom is to understand Jesus, and to understand Jesus is to understand the kingdom of God. 
And so when we come and investigate the kingdom of God, we find ourselves investigating King Jesus and the claims that Jesus makes about himself. When we ask, well, what is this kingdom? What does it mean that the time is fulfilled? What does it mean that the kingdom has drawn near to us? We find ourselves asking a more pointed question. We find ourselves asking, well, who is this Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the king of the kingdom? This integral connection that we see between Jesus and the kingdom of God helps us make sense of the struggle of discipleship. And we see this very struggle that we ourselves are engaged in trying to figure out these these questions, what this all means for us, illustrated in the lives of the twelve. As these twelve men attempt to understand the preaching and teaching of Jesus, we hear them asking pointed questions. After the calming of the sea and the wind, these men cry out, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this is the very issue that boils over in the boat when Jesus presses into his disciples after he fed the crowds. Jesus questions his men, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not understand? This is the very matter that our text circles around this morning. Jesus again comes to his his disciples and his questioning is all the more pointed and clear. Who do people say that I am? And he removes all doubt and Jesus asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And the stark fact is that the disciples' grasp and share of the kingdom will be revealed in how they answer this important question. What will they say about Jesus? Who do they think he is? What do they think he is all about? What do they think he's going to get done? Even more importantly, Jesus' question is directed to us as well. We're looking into a living book, and Jesus' question rises up out of the page and addresses each one of us. And, And Jesus looks at us this morning. He says, but who do you say that I am? What will you say about me and my mission and my messiahship and my kinghood? And our grasp and our share in this kingdom is revealed by how we answer Jesus' question. But who do you say that I am? And so as Mark has patiently revealed Jesus to us, and he's done this through healing stories and mighty deeds and parables and Old Testament quotations and allusions, Mark picks up this important work again. He's not going to let it alone. He wants us to know Christ. But there is a ringing difference that we find in Mark chapter 8. While Jesus' words throughout the gospel so far have been shrouded, while Jesus has been speaking in parables and in riddles and in secrets, while Jesus' identity and mission have been opaque, we see in Mark chapter 8 that the shroud is finally being pulled back. Here in our text, obscurity is giving way to clarity. Secret is giving way to understanding. We're going to see who Christ is. And as we look into Mark chapter 8 this morning, our text, Mark desires that we would get clarity on two important issues. First, Mark desires that we would know exactly what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, and in consequence, we would know exactly what it means for God and his kingdom to have drawn near. So in short, we can say Mark desires that we would get clarity on Jesus, that we would know this King. And the second issue is this. 
that we would know exactly what must be done to us as disciples so that we can acquire this saving information and utter this saving confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants us to know what Jesus must do to us so that we can understand who he is and what this kingdom is all about. Now we're going to work through our text this morning. We're going to accomplish these two aims that Mark has for us by dividing our text into four segments. You're going to notice a movement through the text, a movement through the sermon, a movement from that which is incomplete to that which is complete, a movement from that which is obscure and hazy to that which is crystal clear. So I'll just give you the four sections now so you can take note of them. We're going to begin with looking at an incomplete healing, which is coupled with an incomplete confession. Then we're going to look at a complete healing, which gives away and which is coupled with a complete confession. So we can begin this morning by looking at the incomplete healing. And so we studied Mark's gospel for some time, and we are quite used to Jesus healing people all the time. Jesus speaks and the paralytic walks home. The withered hand is restored. The little dead girl is raised to life. Jesus touches and the leper is made clean and the woman with the flow of blood is is dried up. As we assess Jesus' ministry through the first seven chapters, we we can see clearly there's life and power in Jesus' ministry. Wherever Jesus goes, people are restored. People live fully. And the crowd's reaction to Jesus' ministry sums up the, the first seven chapters of the story. They, they cry out as they witness Jesus' deeds. They say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. But here we come to our text, and our text is strange. It's weird. Look at verses 22 through 24 with me. Mark describes this scene. He says, And they came, Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So as we let this story settle in on us, this this story doesn't fit the mold of what we have come to expect from Jesus' ministry. We expect instant results. We expect complete healing. But after Jesus spits on this man's eyes and places his hands upon him to heal him, the man only receives partial vision. What do you see, Jesus asks? Well, the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So here is Jesus, the one who speaks in the wind and the waves obey him. Here is Jesus, the one who multiplies loaves and fish that feeds thousands of people. But here is this blind man, still legally blind after experiencing Jesus' redemptive touch. They look like trees walking. At this point, as careful readers of Mark's gospel, the question should be piling up in our minds. Why this half-healing? Has has Jesus' power been curtailed? Has Jesus finally met an ailment that he can't overcome? We've seen him overcome leprosy and paralysis and all other sorts of things, but, but can he heal the blind? Has the Spirit's influence weakened in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus? 
Does Jesus just need a rest so his power can be restored and he can heal people completely again? But when we look closely at this text, none of these suggestions will do. They miss the point of what's going on here. Rather, when we look close at this text, we realize that this half-healing was expected by Jesus. Even more, we could say this half-healing was intended by Jesus. We get clued into this in verse 23. Jesus asks the man, do you see anything? In the other healing accounts recorded in Mark's gospel, Jesus simply commands and the needy person responds. They, They walk or they hear or they live. But here, Jesus asks a question and he draws our attention into this scene. He wants us to see what's going on here. He takes time to focus in on this half healing. So we have to understand that within Mark's gospel, these healing stories carry symbolic value meaning that the illness or the the handicap and the corresponding healing point to a greater reality. They're like a signpost that that point us to something greater, a greater reality. And so when Jesus heals people, it just doesn't reveal that he is a healer, but it's saying something about who he is, what the kingdom of God is like, who these people are and what these people need. What Mark does here in chapter 8 is common currency within the scriptures. If you turn back to the book of Isaiah, which we have been doing throughout our series on the Gospel of Mark, you will find Isaiah doing a similar thing with these diseases. And when you look in Isaiah, you find that the relationship between the Lord and his people is revealed through a series of rich symbols. So if you turn to Isaiah 6, we hear this frightening ministry objective for the prophet. The Lord tells Isaiah what he's going to accomplish in his preaching ministry. The Lord says to Isaiah, he says, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and what? And blind their eyes. Or we can fast forward in Isaiah chapter 42. And in Isaiah chapter 42, the the Lord looks upon his people and he gives a careful assessment of what his people are like. And the Lord says this, Who is blind but my servant? Who is blind as my dedicated one or is blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. So what's going on in Isaiah? Well, within Isaiah, the physical handicap of blindness richly reveals what has become of the people of God in sin. They're blind. They're incapable of knowing their God. They're blind. They're incapable of understanding the ways of their God. They're blind. They cannot follow the law of God. But if we continue to poke around Isaiah, we also find symbolic meaning in the restoration of sight. In Isaiah 42, verse 16, we hear this hopeful word. The Lord speaks about what he is going to do for his blind people. He says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. I will turn the darkness before them into light. Or we can turn to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. The Lord again speaks what he's going to do for his blind people. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And so what does this symbolism mean? Well, restored vision reveals what the Lord will do in salvation for his blind people. The Lord will come and he will patiently take his blind people by the hand and and lead them back to himself so that they might know him and they might have understanding of his ways. That they will know the law of the Lord and that they will be obedient to it and that they will comply with the Lord. So now we can return back to Mark chapter 8. 
So as we consider this incomplete healing of this blind man, we have to ask, well, what does this incomplete healing reveal about Jesus and his disciples and the relationship that they have? Now, we only can make sense of our text, the symbolism in this healing story, when we read it together with the rest of our text. And Mark wants us to read all of this together. As Jesus asked the blind man in verse 23, he pauses this healing story saying, do you see anything? Jesus does something similar with his disciples in verses 27 through 29. Jesus pauses the story and he asks his disciples and he wants to know their spiritual perception, what they can see spiritually. And so Mark records, And on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? So we see this this parallel between these two stories. And so we are aware that the disciples have been with Jesus for quite some time. Even more, we are aware that these men have experienced much with Jesus in their time with him. They've witnessed healings and and miracles. They've heard his preaching. They've heard his parables. They've experienced his fellowship. They've spent time with Jesus. But they have, during this time, greatly struggled with the very questions that Jesus addresses them with. Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? So if we look down to verse 29, finally we find a breakthrough in this relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Peter can actually see. He confesses before the rest of the people. He says, you are the Christ. And this is a watershed moment in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. This is a turning point within the Gospel of Mark. The disciples have finally begun to pierce the saving identity of Jesus. They're finally getting it, what Jesus is all about. And in Matthew's recording of the scene, Jesus celebrates this insight. He begins to worship God on account of what, what Peter says. Jesus says in Matthew, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so when we look at Peter's confession, we can truly say that these disciples have gained spiritual sight. Peter says, You are the Christ. We can remember Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They're on the right track. But it's here that we need to stop and probe Peter's confession. How clearly do these men actually see? What kind of clarity, what kind of spiritual sight do they actually have and are operating with here? And as we investigate this text, what we find is that Peter's confession you are the Christ, is similar to the blind man's response to Jesus when Jesus says, well, what do you see? The man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Just as this man's healing was incomplete, he could see, he could see light, he could make out shapes, but he could not see clearly. In the same way, Peter's confession is incomplete. He, he speaks rightly of Jesus, you are the Christ, but he doesn't get the fullness of what he's confessing. He doesn't understand fully who this Jesus is before him. Peter has a measure of spiritual sight. Light has broken in where there is only darkness. But at the end of the day, he doesn't understand the depth or the definition of what he uttered with his own lips. You are the Christ. If we keep moving through our text, the incompleteness of Peter's confession is made painfully clear to us. As Jesus begins to explain his Messiahship and what it will entail, Peter is shocked by what Jesus says. 
Jesus speaks of suffering and rejection and death, and Peter is disgusted by Jesus' words. And we find the remaining blindness in Peter exposed in verse 32. Peter comes to Jesus, and, and Mark records this scene. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter can see, but he can't see clearly. What an utterly strange and sad scene that Mark records for us. Here is Peter, the disciple of Jesus, the follower of Jesus, the learner of Jesus. And here he is rebuking his teacher, his master, his Lord, his friend, his God. And so we can say this morning as we look into this text, something has gone wrong here for Peter. Something has gone wrong for these men. But the question I want to ask this morning is, is why? Why is Peter's vision yet clouded about Jesus? Why does he confess Jesus, but then in the next scene, reject Jesus' Messiahship? Why is he like the half-healed blind men? Why can't he see clearly? What is going on in Peter? And we find the reason for Peter's spiritual blindness in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Jesus' words here, we find the reason for Peter's continued blindness. And we have to assert this morning that this blindness of Peter is not an innocent mistake. As if Peter did not connect all the dots in his Old Testament reading. As if he neglected to read Isaiah's graphic description of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Rather, what we find in Jesus' rebuke is this. The logic is this. Peter, in your rejection of my suffering sonship, what you have done is you have sided with Satan. You have sided with the great enemy of God. Even more, your vision of my ministry is clouded by your desires for, for comfort. Your commitment to me is weakened by your lust of having the first place. Your, your blindness is due to the raging pride that's going on within your heart. You cannot see me clearly. You cannot understand my messianic vocation. You cannot understand the way of the cross. You cannot understand the fullness of God's kingdom. Why? Well, Peter, you love yourself just, just too much. And what we find in Peter's heart is a tragedy, and we find this tragedy in the rest of the disciples as well. Peter is not alone with his heart problems. As we move forward in the gospel story, each time Jesus takes his disciples aside and and reveals his his messianic vocation, what he will do as the Christ, the Son of God, and, and what this kingdom is all about, the disciples as a whole misunderstand Jesus because of their sin sick hearts. When Jesus speaks of his future suffering in chapter 9, what happens? Well, the men cannot understand Jesus. Why? Because they're busy arguing with each other about who is the greatest. Or you go to chapter 10, and again, the disciples cannot perceive what Jesus is talking about, and we can ask, why? Well, the answer is they're too busy jockeying for the seats found at Jesus' left and right hands. Mark is drilling us this morning. What a powerful lesson we find here. What is it that keeps us from giving full confession to Jesus' identity and work? What is it that keeps a sinner from Christ? What is it that keeps us from understanding the ways of God? What is it that keeps us from following closely after Jesus in faith and repentance? What is it that keeps us from seeing the beauty of the kingdom and of the Christ? Well, it's not simply a lack of information. 
It's not simply a lack of intellectual strength or force. It is not even an underdeveloped knowledge of the scriptures. Rather, it is all the more personal. And, and Mark is probing our souls this morning as we look into this text. What we see exposed in Peter's heart, what we see exposed in the disciples' hearts is our problem as well. What keeps us back at a root level from Christ Jesus is an enslavement to comfort. What keeps us back from Christ is a consuming love of self. What keeps us from treasuring the ways of God is is seeking the pride of first place. What keeps us from seeing and treasuring Christ for all he is as our Savior is a consuming and passionate love for ourselves. Jesus' words to Peter ring out loud and true, and they are a caution to us. They are true for us as well. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in a sad turn of events, Peter's confession, this, this bright spot so far in discipleship, you are the Christ, is quickly overshadowed by, continue, by continued spiritual blindness. And Jesus' rebuke shows us just how far off base Peter's heart is really at. And again, Mark is doing something with us. He's, he's reminding us that these 12 men stand in desperate need of salvation. These disciples stand in need of the saving grace of God. They cannot get it on their own. They cannot understand Christ on their own. They cannot get into this kingdom and experience the saving reign of God on their own. So in order to find good news, we have to turn our eyes away from these sinful men. To find good news, we have to turn our eyes away from our sinful selves, and we must cast them upon Jesus, our Savior. And so we can ask, well, what hope is there for these spiritually blind men? What hope is there for Peter? who confesses Jesus, but then in the next moment is found rebuking Jesus. Even more we can ask for ourselves, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for comfort lovers and first place seekers and self-absorbed self-lovers like us? And it's here that Mark wants us to look at the healing of the blind man. So this man has already experienced the redemptive touch of Jesus. And from Jesus' touch, light has, has broken in. He has a measure of sight. He can, he can actually see where he couldn't see before. But this man's healing is incomplete. I, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And so what does this partially healed man need? The answer is quite simple. He needs the Lord Jesus Christ. He needs a second redemptive healing touch. And this is what we find in our text. Mark brings good news to our souls in verse 25. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Mark just drills this point home. We cannot miss it. In three different ways, he emphasizes the complete healing of this man. He opened his eyes. Mark says, don't miss this. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly three times, and in three ways, Mark says the same thing. His healing is complete because of Jesus. And in this story, we begin to find good news for ourselves and for the disciples. Those, these men have, have vision that is cloudy. Though their hearts are cluttered with, with idols, though they crave comfort, though their hearts seek after the first place and they will argue about it, though their minds are set on the things of man, upon money and pride, though the one who can heal their sin-sick hearts walks and ministers among them. And what these men need is just what that blind man needs, the healing touch of Jesus. 
to overcome their remaining blindness. What Mark is teaching us is only the grace of Jesus will allow these men to understand the kingdom of God and understand who Jesus is and what he is all about as Savior. And brothers and sisters, what we see this morning in Mark is the blessed hope of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. Here we see a Savior who labors among stubborn and sinful disciples. We have a Savior who patiently redeems a people from spiritual blindness, overcoming by his healing touch our love of comfort, our our prideful seeking of first place, and the many idols that clutter up in our hearts. What glory is there for us as Jesus tarried with this blind man, not touching him just once but twice. Jesus tarries with his spiritually blind people, overcoming the idols of their hearts. And we must press this doctrine into our souls. The gospel is a message of undeserved grace. Even more, we can say that we can only receive this message of undeserved grace by grace itself. And Mark is teaching us the 12 will only grasp a hold of Jesus. How? What only happened through his healing touch. Their cloudy and sinful vision will only be cleared by his redeeming grace. And this fact is true for us as well. We can only pierce the saving identity of Jesus. We can only enter the kingdom of God. We can only treasure God's ways in God's word when Christ Jesus places his grace-filled hands on our spiritually blind eyes. There is no other way into the kingdom. There is no other way to get Jesus except by grace. Love of self, love of comfort, obsession with the things of man can only be overcome by the grace of Christ Jesus. And then, With Christ's hands upon us, we can see what it's all about. We can see reality. So we began by considering an incomplete healing. We looked at an incomplete confession. We've seen a a complete healing. Now we need to look at a complete confession. And so it's here, finally, with, with the grace of Christ, that we can utter a complete confession. It is here with Christ's gracious hands placed upon our eyes that we can taste the kingdom of God for what it is and know who Christ is. And so we can return to the questions that we began with this morning. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God? What does it mean for the time to be fulfilled and the kingdom of God to be at hand? What does it mean for God's kingdom to be here among us working? Verses 31 through 32, Mark unveils the secret of the kingdom of God. What is Jesus all about? What is this kingdom all about? Well, Mark tells us. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What we learn in Jesus' words is that God will gain his final victory. The victory prophesied throughout the Old Testament. The victory that will swallow up death forever. The victory that will purge God's people of sins forever. The victory that will bring peace to the unruly and rebellious nations. The victory that will fully and finally destroy Satan and all of his demons. This victory, this glorious day, will arrive through the suffering, the rejection, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. That is what the kingdom of God is all about about. That is what Christ Jesus is all about. And this is a staggering revelation that we have to wrestle with to get our minds around. This is the struggle of discipleship. God's omnipotent power, God's sovereign plan from before the the beginning of time, God's righteous rule, 
Christ's glorious sonship is most fully revealed where? It's revealed in his suffering, his rejection, his death on a cross. And Jesus draws near to us this morning and he asks us, do you want to understand who I am? Do you want to understand who I am as the Christ, the Son of God? Do you want to understand what this kingdom is all about and how you can recognize it? Well, then you must cast your eyes to the cross. See what I will do there. See what I will accomplish there. See how I will suffer and die there. See what I will accomplish. That is who I am, and this is what the kingdom of God is all about. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus reveals to us in verse 31 is exactly what we need. Here is the Son of God that we need. We are like the disciples, spiritually blind, prideful, seeking the first place, having our minds set on the things of man. And what we need is a king who will save us through his own suffering, rejection, and death. We need a king who by his own blood will deliver us from condemnation, which we rightly deserve. He needs to take our our place. We need a king who will will die our death to sin. We need a king who will suffer in our place. We need a king who will triumph over Satan through his own suffering and defeat his demons and his power and free us from his tyranny. And brothers and sisters, this is what's preached in the gospel this morning. This is the Christ who is ours. So brothers and sisters, in light of this text, we get clarity. In light of Jesus' grace-filled ministry, he puts his hands upon our spiritually blind eyes, we get clarity. And by his grace, we can be like the man who received Jesus' ministry. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Because of the ministry of Jesus, because of his rejection, his suffering, his death, We can be freed from our spiritual blindness. We can offer up a complete confession. We can say the words of Jesus for ourselves. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. We can look into Jesus' words and find the glory there. We can taste the kingdom there. We can taste Christ's glory for ourselves and see his beauty. This is Jesus and he gives us clarity today. In light of our text, Jesus' preaching comes to us afresh. Consider this with me. The, The one who suffered, the one who was rejected and killed, the one who rose again, the one who who came upon earth for 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, preaches good news to our hearts today. It is Christ Jesus who says this to us. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, and we can know it because he suffered, he died, he rose, ascended. And even more, this one who suffered, this one who's rejected and killed and rose and ascended, speaks to us today. And he, he brings the demands of the gospel to us afresh. He calls to us. He says, repent and believe in this gospel. And won't you repent and believe in this gospel with me once again? Won't you give your allegiance to this Jesus once again? Won't you give your loyalty to his kingdom once again? Won't you align all of your priorities the loves in your heart, what you seek, the priorities of Jesus' kingdom. Won't you treasure Jesus above all and cast everything aside? Won't you forsake the love of comfort and the love of first place and selfishness for the kingdom of the cross and embrace Christ there? Won't you follow Jesus today? 
Won't you entrust yourself to the one who suffered and was rejected and died and rose and who preaches to us today? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess this morning we are like the disciples. We are no better than them. We are no better than Peter. Sin rages within our own hearts. We love the first place. We seek the places of honor. We don't get the cross or the kingdom of the cross. No, we pray, won't you minister healing to us through Jesus' words today? Won't you overcome idols today? Won't you cast down comfort and the love of first place and the love of self afresh today? Oh, Father, we desire to be like that blind man who received the second touch of Jesus. We want to see clearly. Show us Christ. Amen.